As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, it feels like an interesting moment in markets. Yes. I mean, there's the sort of short-term obvious stuff that's interesting, like, oh, what's going to happen with the soft landing or what's going to happen with the Fed, etc. But it also feels like a pretty big turning point in markets overall. Absolutely. Well, to me, it feels like kind of a massive flip-flop from doom and gloom 2022, where it kind of felt like everyone was talking about the world was actually ending. And suddenly, you know, fast forward to just the beginning of 2023, and everyone's talking about a soft landing. Maybe the recession is averted. Markets are up quite remarkably, including things that got absolutely crushed last year. So some of the big tech stocks, Bitcoin, I mean, some of the, the... Chinese companies like real estate and consumer tech companies, all of those are surging. Right. So like there's this hope, right, that we let's just go back to 2019 or let's just go back to 2021. Like, let's just hang on. And it's sort of this thing because, you know, when I think of 2021 or when I think of like 2019, it was sort of like the ultimate speculative froth low interest rate environment. And as I, as everyone's tired of hearing me say, like on this podcast, like, you know, I, you know, I first got interested in markets at the end of the dot com. <laughs> Here level. it comes, folks. No, but I remember like those periods yeah. where it's like, you know, you have like, you look at the NASDAQ in 2001 or 2000 and you have like these like 50% rallies. It's like, oh, we're back. Oh no, it's over. We're back. It's over. And that process of like, I guess a bubble deflating is like a long process. People are slow to give it up. Well, that's exactly it. And it sort of happens in fits and starts. Yes. And I'm glad you mentioned the keywords there, which are bubble and, you know, speculation, speculative interest, because today we are going to be talking to someone who is kind of an expert in exactly that. And particularly one period of speculative financial history. We are going to be speaking with Steve Eisman. He is a portfolio manager at Newberger Berman. And he famously bet against subprime mortgages before the 2008 financial crisis. Of course, you might recognize him from the movie The Big Short. He was played by Steve Carell. So really, the perfect guest to talk about markets right now. Perfect. Let's do it. All right, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So where should we start? Maybe give us just your top line opinions on where markets are right now. Um, this is going to be a long intro. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. People are going to lo- are enjoy They'll love listening it. to so, it. So yeah. I remember back in college, one of the most influential books I read was a book by Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. He invented the modern meaning of the word paradigm. And the point of the book was that science paradigms change over time. Sometimes those paradigms change violently. And sometimes those paradigms change over time because people don't give up their paradigms easily. And I think we're going through a period possibly like that again. So, you know, markets have long periods of paradigms where there are certain groups that are leaders. So in the 90s, for example, it was largely, I'd call it large conglomerates like GE was what people made money in and wanted to invest in. And it it lasted about eight years until there was a small period of the dot-com bubble. And obviously that ended and there was a recession. 
And after that, really through 2007, the new paradigm, and just to take a step back, when you know when market paradigms shift, it's unusual that the old leaders become the new leaders. There's a shift and there's there's a new leadership group. And you know, one of the most important leadership groups, I'd call it from 2002 through the end of 2007, were financials, you know, largely investment banks, very large banks, where the opinion of the market was the people who ran these firms were basically geniuses until they weren't. And, you know, we had a violent period in 2008 and 2009 where those stocks got crushed. Almost all of them would have gone bankrupt unless the government bailed them out, which it did. But, you know, financial stocks that did well in the 2000s did literally nothing until probably 2020. So call it a dozen years where the old leadership group evaporated. And it was replaced by a new leadership group. And that leadership group was tech and growth stocks. And I think the reason for that is that the Fed cut rates essentially to zero and kept them there. And so you were essentially paid to take risk. And as we all know, there's a discounting mechanism of stocks where you know you plot out the earnings. And the lower the discount rate, the more the stock is worth. So the groups that the group that did best were growth tech stocks. And within growth tech stocks, the group that did the best were the high growth, no earnings stocks. And that le- that basically lasted until last year. And if you look, you know, it was a bad market last year. But um, the the stocks that did the worst were the growth tech stocks. And within the growth tech stocks, the stocks that did the worst were the high growth, no earnings stocks down generally anywhere from 70 to 90%. You know, it's a crushing percentage. But like I said, you know, people don't give up paradigms easily. And so, so far this year, the stocks have, that have done best were the, the same stocks that did the worst. And, you know, if you go back to 2009 through early 2010, financial stocks had their last hurrah. You know, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, et cetera, did very, very well until you know, Dodd-Frank was passed and they had to delever. So they had kind of had a last hurrah. And maybe this is the last hurrah right now for growth stocks, possibly. And you know, I think it'll all depend pretty much on the Fed. You know, Powell has said that he's going to keep raising rates. And the, the important sentence is, and he'll leave them there. If he leaves them there, I think we'll have a paradigm shift. If he cuts it again, we'll go back to what we were, which is growth stocks. I mean, I think he's going to leave him there, and then we'll have a paradigm shift, but it's unknowable at this point. You know, like I said, paradigm shifts can be very violent. They take time. I think we're in the middle of that right now. And like I said, it's unusual when you shift to new paradigm that the old leaders become the new leaders. What the new leaders will be, assuming this happens at this point, I don't really know. You know, Joe, I'm looking at the bubble portfolio, which was Ooh. created by another Odd Lots guest, Paul McNamara, and basically has a lot of the stocks that Steve was just talking about up 20% so far this year. Tracy, mm-hmm. it was created by Paul and me. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, co, I co-created I'm that, so sorry, uh, Joe. portfolio of bubble. B- by the way, some of those stocks are up 50 to 60% yeah, in January. Yeah, no, it's pretty, it's it's like pretty the, it's, it's astonishing. Now, they're up 50 to 60% yeah. from very low levels. You know, take, I'm not picking on them, take a stock sure. like Affirm, which is a buy now, pay later company, really a financial company. I think it's up 60% this year, but it's up 60% this year after being down basically 90%. So I think it closed last year around eight and it's, yeah. it's 15, but it used to be, I don't remember, 100, 200, whatever it was. Yeah. Another one of these ones that I've been watching is a Open Door. Mm. Which got below a dollar at the end of December. Now at two twenty seven, so like more than a double. But that was like a twelve dollar. I mean, that was a spec. I mean, so it's like yes. incredible beat down, and then this sort of bounce. What is that process? I, you know, you talk about this sort of like the giving up the dreams and the process by which people aren't sure is it over, is it not over? We don't want to change the paradigm. Just in the sort of like how to talk a little bit more about like how that happens, what that how that process works. Well, it takes time. You know, I would recommend everybody read this Thomas Kuhn book. It was published <laughs> the year I was born, 1962, which is, I guess, revelatory for me. You know, but, but what he describes is 
like I said, people don't give up their paradigms easily. It, when when Einstein created his theory of relativity, for example, this is in the book, it's not like everybody said, oh, we've been waiting for Einstein. Thank <laughs> God. Now we can get rid of Newton. You know, people, it took several years for people to realize that that was a better theory. And I think something like that happens in markets. You know, paradigms in essence are so deeply ingrained in people's brains, they can't even imagine at times that there could be anything else. And so, like I said, since paradigms, people don't give up their paradigms easily, the only thing that gets people to give them up is time. Now, the financial stocks, that was quick because they utterly collapsed. But that's unusual. It's not like it's not like in the 90s the conglomerates collapsed. Right. They didn't collapse. Their earnings growth slowed. And you know, people expected the earnings growth to reaccelerate and it didn't. So, you know, take GE. You know, GE was a star for almost all the 90s. And then when Immel took over just before 9-11, it's deteriorated. You know, one of the, probably one of the best trades in the world would have been owning Amazon and shorting GE. Right. You know, it's funny, uh, Tracy, I actually went, I mentioned Open Door. I got it kind of wrong. I said it was at 12. No, it was a $35 stock that went to a dollar. <laughs> so I was sort of understating the scale of the collapse. But more importantly, to yeah, see- let's talk about Open Door please. for a oh, second. Oh, great. Let's get right into it. So Open Door had a business model where they would buy homes, fix them up, and try to sell them quickly. Now, when you think about it, that business model only works if housing prices are going up. If housing prices are going down, it's a disaster. Right. Um, so I never thought it was a real business model. It was a timing model. And I think the reason why the stock got crushed last year was because, I mean, housing hasn't collapsed in the United States, but it's kind of locked. Mm. And housing prices have gone down. So A, it's hard to sell. And B, you're selling for less. And that's why Open Door is down so much. But, you know, when it came out, it was another one of these speculative, yeah. going to conquer the world stocks until it wasn't. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I definitely want to talk more to you about housing and, and real estate in a second, but just on the paradigm shift. You know, when I think about the paradigm of the past couple of years, you mentioned low interest rates and that helping to boost valuations. But I also think about momentum and people just identifying the thing that they think other people are going to buy and then pouring into that. And so having a lot of valuations driven by flows. Can you talk about that behavior in the market? I, I call this what I call this the Amazon disease. I'm not saying Amazon's a bad company. It's a great company. What I mean by the Amazon disease is, you know, when Amazon came public, there was a lot of skepticism that this would work. And Amazon has basically conquered the world. And so people are always looking for the next Amazon. And you know that they're looking for the next Amazon when they just, when they write, when, when the sell side writes a research report. And the first sentence is, the TAM is huge, <laughs> which means the total available market is huge. Well, 
you know, take Open Door again. Housing is huge. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's no question that housing is huge. But that doesn't mean people's business models are going to conquer housing. But people are constantly, you know, again, when rates are zero, you're paid to speculate. So you look at Open Door and you say, well, the housing market in the United States is, I don't know, a trillion to whatever it is, a trillion, two trillion. If Open Door only gets 1% of that market, the stock is huge. And as long as revenue growth is strong, people are willing to make that bet. When revenue growth starts to slow, they 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 get they don't think about the TAM anymore. They start to think about the mm. business model. So, you know, in the 2000, 2010 through two, beginning of 2022, if you were a company that had no earnings but strong revenue growth, people dream the dream. When the revenue growth slows, people stop dreaming the dream. Or a combination of that with higher rates and the discounting mechanism takes down the stock. You know, even companies that did well last year went down because of the discounting mechanism. So let's say we are at this paradigm shift and we don't know what it's going to be. We don't know what it's going to um, look like, but something that's not speculative tech will be the new leadership presumably for a while. As an investor, like, do you feel like you can wait and sort of see what it is and like let the market kind of decide? Or do you feel like an impulse to try to anticipate today what that thing is going to be? I think you anticipate a little bit. You know, so for example, I think one of the themes for the next several years is what I would call the reshoring of the industrial world back into the United States. So, you know, for the last, call it 30 years, Companies have essentially sent their supply lines out to the inside the United States because labor in the United States is expensive and labor in China and Vietnam is cheap. And that worked for a very long time and it was very deflationary. And COVID proved one thing. Yes, that supply chain is less expensive, but it's also very brittle. And because of what happened during COVID, people are companies are bringing back the supply chain, at least partially back to the United States. So, you know, stocks that haven't done anything in 20 years, let's say, might start to do well, like BHP, iron ore, et cetera. That's one theme that I think will last a long time. Greenification, I think, will last a long time, although some of those stocks have no earnings and high revenue growth, so I never quite know what to make of them. But there are other ways to play the same theme. You know, there are companies, I won't mention any names, but there are companies that are, that are, well, let's call them normal, that are helping rebuild the infrastructure of the United States and the electrification of the United States, et cetera. So those are things you could start to look at. So that's actually something that we've spoken quite a lot about on Oblots, this idea of a, a sort of shift from, I guess, ephemerate tech software to the reality of actual things. This might be a slightly weird question, but do you think investors are well positioned or well informed to to grasp that shift? Because I imagine there must be a fundamental difference between looking at a tech company mm. versus, say, I don't know, an, an oil major or something like that. Oh, I don't think people are prepared yet. You know, they've owned tech stocks for so long. You know, they look at revenue growth, they look at EVD, but da. You know, one of the things that I find astonishing, for example, about tech stocks is they don't include stock-based compensation and earnings, mm. which I just find a little weird. <laughs> and because I, I would always ask, uh, do you deduct stock-based stock comp from your taxes? And the answer to that is always, yeah. So in that sense, it's real. But when they report earnings, they pretend it's not real. But the market doesn't seem to care. But I think it's going to take time. You know, like I like I we talked about before, some of these very speculative stocks are up forty to sixty percent this year. It's going to take time for people to start to do, I think, research on other stuff. I know you weren't investing yet at this point, but uh, you know, presume as a student of market history, was there the same process? Like with the like earlier tech bubbles like in the 60s with the aerospace stocks and some of those other waves? 
I mean, I was in grade school. In the That's 60s. what I'm saying. No, I figured, but I, I <laughs> although the two of you, I don't think we're alive back then. <laughs> um, you know, I think if you look at, at economic history, probably it's true. I haven't really looked at it right, that much, right. but you know, in the in the late 70s, the 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 group that people wanted to own were oil stocks. Yeah, the oil stocks haven't done well for God knows how many years until basically the last two. Now, I it, it, let's talk about oil stocks for a second. You know, pipeline stocks, oil stocks. You know, why did they do so poorly? This is not a paradigm shift. This is a shareholders' revolt mm. issue. So, you know, if you look back, call it 2010 through maybe 2018 or so, and this is where I would say incentives trump ethics every time. So, the people who ran these companies, whether it was the midstream pipelines or the drillers, the CEOs of those companies were all compensated essentially on volume. So it didn't matter whether oil prices were 30 or whether oil prices were 80. They kept growing their production. And in most cases, they basically never made money, whether oil prices were 30 or oil prices were 80. And at some point, probably around 2016, when the group got crushed, I think that the shareholders literally revolted. And they went to these managements and said, enough. And you have to change your compensation to ROE, et cetera. And the stocks have done pretty well since then, especially in the last two years, because the way they operate now is they basically plan their business models for oil prices as something like 50 to 60. And if oil prices are above, they return the money to shareholders which is one of the reasons why, despite the fact that oil prices was, were so high last year, those same companies did not increase their production that much. Now, some people accuse the Biden administration of this. I don't think it has anything to do with the Biden administration. It has to do in, in, with the change in incentive structure for these companies. Incentives trumping ethics is such a good line, and I'm definitely going to um, steal it from you at some point, Steve. You can plagiarize. You don't even have to quote me. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank, I appreciate that. Um, I have a full license on that line. You know, given your background, I think we would be remiss to not talk a little bit about financial risk and financial stability. Mm. And this is something that has come up over the past year with the Fed raising interest rates so rapidly, and yet we haven't actually seen a significant break. Is the system fixed? Is it just not going to come, that big breakage that you know some people have been anticipating for a while? Well, I can't say that there won't be breakage any, anywhere. That I mean, there, there always could be breakage. What, what I would say definitively is that there will not be breakage in the U.S. financial system, especially in the banks. We can owe that to one person, which is Daniel Tarullo, who was the first vice chairman in f- charge of financial supervision at the Fed, which was a position that was created only from Dodd-Frank. And he was given the job, although it's funny, he was never actually officially appointed to the job because oh. you know, it makes it, he'd have to testify in front of the Senate. It would have been difficult, but he, he was essentially given the job anyway. And he really took the banks, he was very harsh. What he did to them, the banks objected to literally kicking and, str- and screaming. But today they'd probably all thank him there are two things that he did. He reduced leverage in the banks enormously. And even within that leverage, he made them cut off the tails of risk. So just to give you an example, Citigroup, before the crisis, if you included all the off-balance sheet stuff that eventually came back on balance sheet, it was probably levered anywhere from 35 to 40 to 1. And by the time he was done, it was levered 10 to 1. Now, for listeners, that may not mean that much, you know, 40 to 10, you know, those are just numbers. But the way I would describe it is when you're levered 40 to 1, to destroy the bank, you need a pebble. But when Mm. the bank is levered 10 to 1, you need a meteor. So now... We could have worse credit in the United States, although that really hasn't happened yet. So under those circumstances, the banks would earn less. But I would say, other than a couple of banks, 
uh, not one bank in the United States will lose money. Hmm. I seem to remember, weren't you one of the few people that read all of Dodd-Frank from like front to back? I think it was 2,000 pages or something Well, I like didn't. That. That's not true. That's, that, <laughs> <laughs> that's a myth. Oh, okay. <laughs> so you're talking about financial stability, but, you know, we also touched on real estate earlier. And again, you know, you, you sort of characterized the housing market. It's kind of in a freeze. Maybe it's already stabilized a little bit. But with rates having shot up so much, I mean, like, how are you thinking about, like, housing and where it's going to go? And can, like, can it stabilize with such a repricing of mortgages in a short period of time? Um, I mean, sure, it can reprice. It takes time. I did a small calculation when mortgage rates got to seven, which was if you calculated the monthly payment of someone who bought a home with a 3% mortgage versus someone who wants to buy the same home at the same price with the same mortgage at 7%, for that person to have the same monthly payment as the person with a 3% mortgage, the price of the house has to go down from like 35 to 40%. Now, as long as people are employed, they're not going to sell their home down 40%. They'll just live in their home. So housing prices have come, come down some, but it's, it's still the case, I think, that the housing market is locked. Let's say you want to, you have a small home, you got a couple of kids now, so you want to sell your house and you want to buy a larger house. You can't. You're stuck. So you buy bunk beds. But, My kids have a bunk bed. Well, there's nothing wrong with yeah. that. <laughs> um, but not only is housing locked, you know, building suppliers have, you know, less ability to sell their products because housing is not turning over. So that would be a short area, but I'm not going to give you any names. So this is actually something that I've been thinking about a little bit, which is it, house prices are sort of being supported by illiquidity at the moment, right? And uh, I don't think they're supported by illiquidity. I think they're being supported by employment. Mm. You know, like I said, if, if you're, you have a 3% mortgage, so your monthly payment is very, very low, you have a job, you don't have to sell your house, you're just not going to sell it down a lot. So mm. you just sit there and hope that eventually people will get used to a 7% mortgage and you can sell your home. But that could take a long time. That's fair. What I was going to ask about is recent events that we've seen with the real estate investment trusts. And we're recording this on February 1st. Blackstone just announced that it hit a monthly redemption limit. Is there going to be- What was the number, did they say? Five billion. Five billion, Five billion. Yeah. Okay. That was in line with people's expectations, I think. It's not a great number. And they have um, gates- yeah. So I, I forget what the number is, but you can't withdraw $5 billion in a month. It's probably, I don't know, $500 million, something like that, maybe $250 million. Mm. So, you know, they have gates. But This is kind of where I was going with the liquidity point, right? right? I mean, you know, let's just talk about the Blackstone, you know, private REIT. So I'm not being critical of Blackstone, but when, when you, you think about the structure of that REIT, it has what I'd call an asset liability mismatch, meaning you're investing in real estate. Those investments could be good, but they're liquid. So it's not like you can sell a building overnight, but your, your liabilities, meaning your investors, can withdraw money every single month. So if the withdrawals get too bad, you're going to have to sell some of your real estate. Now, Blackstone has a very good reputation, so it might be fine. But I think what happened last year with that, it's called the B-REIT, is that about 20% of the B-REIT's investors were from Asia. And those Asian investors got from some investment banks enormous leverage to invest. And given what the markets did last year, they got margin calls and they had to you know, withdraw money from Blackstone to pay off their margin calls. Now, how much more that's going to take place in the next several months, I have no idea. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market. 
giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we talk about how investors leave the old paradigm kicking and screaming. But I'm thinking also about like scars from the past. And I feel like people listen and they hear like, oh, there's some illiquid fund and there's a margin call. And there's this real pe- people yanking their money out and they're like, they, they reach for the 2007 playbook in their minds or the 2008. To what degree do you think memories of that crisis mm. are still informing how investors think about and try to assess the market today? Oh, I think 2000 and 2008 for some investors is like PTSD. Look, financials are complicated. There aren't a lot of people on planet Earth who really understand how much the financial structure of the United States and Europe has really changed. So they see they see the markets go down and they say to themselves, oh my God, something bad is going to happen. Now, something bad could happen. You know, we could have a recession, but my feeling is we'll have an old-fashioned run-of-the-mill recession. We're not going to have some enormous you know, meltdown crisis where the system is completely at risk, which is what happened in 08. Before you forget, I mean, you, you use the pebble versus meteor analogy. Can you just explain, like, what is it about the nature of U.S. banks now that you say they cannot lose money? Well, you're levered 40 to 1. Um, you know, what happened in the financial crisis, one of the things that's very important and and getting back to my line, which I've donated to you, incentives, <laughs> Trump ethics every time, is there? there's a concept called risk-weighted assets where the system, you know, the regulatory system tried to merge the concept of leverage with risk. And so every asset on the balance sheet got a risk weight. And so when regulators and companies calculated leverage, it wasn't assets divided by equity. It was risk-weighted assets divided by equity. So if you look at Europe, for example, where you know the, the banks are much more uniform, from 2007, I'm sorry, from 1997 through 2007, absolute leverage in the banks in Europe went up three times. But on a risk-weighted asset basis, they were flat. Hmm. So a lot of the executives who ran these companies, when they looked at their balance sheet, they said, oh, our leverage is the same, when in actuality it was much higher. And they had a lot of risk on their balance sheets. They had a lot of subprime assets of various kinds, which all blew up in their face. And so because they were levered so much, they essentially died. The only reason why they, they survived was because they were bailed out. So today, not only is the absolute leverage lower, like I said, Citi has gone from 35 to 40 times to it went to 10, maybe today it's 12. But the type of risk that they take, generally speaking, is far, far lower because the regulators who essentially live in these banks are not allowing them to take enormous types of risk in their loan books. So look, the system, like I said, is probably safe for the first time in my lifetime in that sense. But I don't think a lot of people really understand that that's the case. You know, you mentioned investors getting PTSD from 2008 and it's sort of informing and affecting their subsequent behavior. And I don't think you got PTSD because you made a lot of money out of it, but it was a defining moment of your career. How did you yourself move past that particular era. And what I mean by that is there are people out there who made a lot of money in 2008 who subsequently every year have been issuing warnings <laughs> about how the entire market is going to fall apart, the financial system is going to collapse. How did you move past that? Great question. Oh, a lot of therapy. <laughs> uh, no, no. I, I, the way I got past it was – well, I actually got friendly with Daniel Tarullo. Hmm. 
so I watched what he did very, very closely. And, you know, I realized that what he'd accomplished was actually uh, astonishing. And so the system, you know, was fine. What, what I didn't anticipate until years later was that because the Fed cut rates, you were paid to take so much risk, you could, you, what you wanted to do was buy companies with no earnings. That was much harder to make that shift. But I didn't think that the financial system was going to go down again. Yeah, it really is extraordinary, like how, I mean, you see it still, you know, like, what was it, Credit Suisse a few months ago, like people are just not able to get past this sort of like, yeah, great financial I wasn't going to name any names, Joe. No, but it was just like, people were like, it was in the headlines and stuff. And, you know, people just like reach for those old analogies. So just looking back at your career, you know, your very long and illustrious career, but what was you most flatter sh- me. Yeah. <laughs> what was your most shocking moment? Like what surprised you the most? Whether it was a company that, you know, failed or maybe succeeded or the uh, particular behavior by someone or an entity? Well, what surprised me the most was what happened in 08. And I thought that surely the regulators knew what I knew. How could they not? because they had much more information than I did. Uh, And it became very, very clear as 08 went on that they didn't really understand what was going on until it was too late. And I remember Bernanke made a speech. He said something like, subprime mortgage risk is confined. And I turned to one of my colleagues and I said, yeah, it's confined all right. It's confined to planet Earth. That's funny, by the way. (laughs) Um, Sorry. (laughs) Pay attention. I'm I'm laughing internally. (laughs) So, you know, when you read, um, I forget the book by, but it was a book that was a very early book about the financial crisis. And there was a scene where it was the weekend when Lehman went down. And there was a scene described in the book where as Lehman is going down, they know it's going down, someone walks into the room. I mean, I'm just paraphrasing. And basically says, AIG is also in trouble. And I'm thinking, this is a shock to you? Like, don't you read the research? (laughs) I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. But that was the most shocking thing in my career. I could not believe that the regulators and the government really had no idea what was going on. Can you talk, talk a little bit more about like, okay, to make any real money in the market, there must be some sustained periods where you have a different view than the overall market. I, I don't think that's necessarily true. Okay. You know, 06, 07, 08, I had a very different view. Yeah. Is that hard? oh my God, it's ridiculously hard. The whole world is telling you that you're an idiot. And then sometimes you think you're an idiot. So that's hard. Well, because like, I mean, I've, you know, I've been thinking about that too. Like a lot of people, for example, and I don't, I don't want to like actually dive into this specific thing, but a lot of people, for example, have like had to deal with this in the last year related to like cryptocurrencies where like everyone's calling them an idiot for like not really getting it. And then maybe they're right. But that process of like being called an idiot maybe underperforming or missing some market move for years and being told, like, you fool, don't you see what's happening? It seems like psychologically a You huge mentioned challenge. therapy earlier, yeah. Steve. This is where if I had a therapist, I yeah. would talk about abuse from Bitcoiners. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about Bitcoin Okay, for a okay, second. we can get I mean, get, getting back to do you have to be different? Yeah. You know, from 2010 through 2020, if you objected to high-growth stocks with no earnings – and you were short them, you'd basically be dead. Yeah. So that can last a long time, even though you have a different opinion. You now have to have pretty good timing to deal with that. But let's talk about Bitcoin. Okay. Because um, sure. that's a great fun topic. Okay, fine. So I remember during COVID, you know, I was out on Long Island in the North Fork, basically living there. And I would come back to the city every Tuesday to visit my mother. And so I would drive to the city. There would be no traffic. 
and it would take me about two hours. So I listened to podcasts. What, what else are you going to do? Right. <laughs> I even listened to this podcast every now and then. Oh, thank All you. Right. And, um, but one of the group of podcasts that I listened to were the so-called experts on Bitcoin. And there are always two questions that I had. Number one, why is Bitcoin a currency? And number two, okay, it's a currency, but how should it trade? Now, on every single podcast, they completely skipped over the why is it a currency issue. It was like that was just a given. <laughs> now, that's not a given to me. We can get back to that, but it was a given. The second part of the story about how should Bitcoin act, they all had the same opinion, which was, Fiat currency, which is government-issued currency, has been terribly debased because of all the deficits that all these countries have issued. But it's very hard to short fiat currency because they all trade relative to one another. So if you short the dollar, your problem is that in, in, in a basketball team where everybody's 5-4, the dollar is 5-11. So it's hard to short the dollar. <laughs> right, right because it's, a, it's taller than the other currencies, even though, quote unquote, it's been debased. So therefore, you should buy Bitcoin as a hedge against the debasement of all currencies. Okay, so let's accept that theory for a second. If that's the case, then Bitcoin should go up when people are nervous and rates are going up, and Bitcoin should go down when rates are going down and everybody feels good. And the problem was it actually did the opposite. Right. It would go up with everything else speculative mm. and it would go down with everything else speculative. So what was the point? So, you know, Bitcoin is up a lot this year because it's up a lot with everything else speculative. Now, you can't have a currency that moves 25% every six months. That's not a currency, that's a speculation. And the thing I don't understand about Bitcoin is what problem is it solving? You know, is there a problem with currencies? I mean, the last time you went to the store and you, you pulled out a $20 bill or you paid with your credit card, did the store owner say, oh, no, I don't take dollars? I mean, it's not even an issue. And by the way, the currency markets are the most liquid markets in the world. You know, I like to say, how long does it take to buy dollar euro done a billion dollars done that's how quickly it is so I, I don't understand what bitcoin solves and i don't understand the purpose of owning it other than it's another form of speculation so i i just don't get it so you mentioned speculation and covid and i mean this was something that played into yeah. a lot of the cryptocurrency <laughs> boom this idea that you know people are stuck at home they're bored maybe they got some extra money thanks to the US government and they're using it to trade when you look at consumers now and i i know at various points in time you've had positions in subprime auto lending and some consumer facing things like that but how would you characterize the us consumer cuz this is also something that comes up as people talk about a potential recession in 2023 so let's just say that over the last several years credit quality on the consumer side in the united states the delinquencies and losses got so low they were they've been lower than any time in basically in history. So do I think there's going to be a normalization of delinquencies and losses? I mean, I think that Jamie Dimon said that on the most recent conference call of JP Morgan, but you really haven't seen it yet. So consumers still in pretty good shape. You know, as long as everybody's got a job, people will pay off their debts. So it's really a question of unemployment. If unemployment goes up, you'll see an increase in delinquencies and losses, but it's not going to be a calamity. It's just going to be what I'd call a normalization. So what are you sort of looking for next? I mean, you you mentioned at the, at the beginning of the conversation, like there's still some ambiguities like, oh, is the Fed you know, later in the year going to start cutting? Will this revive the growth stocks? What are the other signs that you would look for either like, yes, the paradigm shift is here and happening and or this is the this is the sector that really is going to define the next decade. And do these things like is it reasonable to say they kind of go by decades? Like if a new paradigm emerges, then 
Is there like a 10 years? Is a well, there's no the reason frame? to say they go by decades. It just yeah. happens to be historically true that they do. Right. Um, <laughs> I, why that's so, I don't know, but it just happens to be the case. You know, un- unfortunately, over the last couple of years, the only thing that's mattered in the markets is one variable. What's Powell going to do and how much is he going to do? There's been very little what I'd call dispersion within sectors. So, you know, one group, you know, let's call it tech stocks, goes up, they all go up. And this is because of ETFs. Oil stocks go up, they all go up. There's no, there's no, there's not much of dispersion within groups. And and that's because everybody's so focused on rates. I think the key moment will be, you know, the, obviously the Fed at some point will stop. When that is, I don't know. The, the, the operative question at that point is, will the Fed keep rates there or will they cut? The market is completely convinced that they will cut, despite the fact that Powell says at every press conference that we're going to leave it there. So either you take him at his word or you don't, and we won't know until that happens. You mentioned ETFs changing the nature of how stocks trade and the sectoral, internal sectoral correlations. Is that here for good? Oh, definitely. So that's all. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. There are lots of different ETFs or algorithms. I'll give you two stocks and and I'm not being critical of them, but I'm just going to give you an example of it. So you have a firm, which we discuss, which is buy now, pay later, which is call it a quasi financial payment stock. And then there's another stock which I'm very familiar with called Trupanion, which is a company that does animal health insurance. Pet insurance. Pet I think insurance. I might have I think I maybe at one point I had a policy. I had from it them. too. Yeah. I had it with them for yeah. a little while. I have I have two dogs. So for a while I used to have four. And so we used Trupanion for a while. Now, when you think about it, what does a firm have to do with Trupanion? Nothing. I mean, one's in animal health insurance and one's <laughs> in buy now, pay later. So The two stocks literally have no overlap in their businesses. They have nothing to do with one another. They're in different sectors, et cetera. The only thing they have in common is that they were high revenue growth, negative earnings companies. And I think if you would watch the markets on a daily basis, the correlation between the two is very high because it's got to be in some kind of ETF and algorithm. The charts are identical. All right. But like I said, they have nothing to do with one another. But they trade together because they're, somebody's got some algorithm or yeah. ETF where they're both in there. ETFs and benchmarks turn the market into a giant blob. Steve, final question for you. What one piece of advice would you give investors and perhaps financial journalists as they go through this paradigm shift? That's a tough question. I actually don't know the answer to that. I just skepticism. You know, you should always be skeptical about what management say. You should do your own homework. That's all I would say. Uh, I don't have what I call a leading question that everybody should ask. <laughs> all right, Steve Eisman, wonderful having you on Odd Lots. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks, Steve. That was great. That was lovely. So good. So, Joe, I enjoyed that conversation so much. Uh, It was sort of wonderful to relive some of the drama of the 2008 financial crisis. But I did think the point about this idea that I I think in 2022, everyone thought the Fed raising interest rates was such a big break in the market. And so there's a sense of whiplash as we kind of enter 2023, where we start to see some of the things that had the most excesses of 2020 and 2021 recover. It's confusing to everyone. But Steve's point about how you know, this isn't a sort of one direction process and you can get these stops and starts in a paradigm shift. I think that was interesting. Yeah, no, it really is. Like people give up the dream. It takes a long time. Right. And, you know, even like myself and I'm, I've never been like some like tech cheerleader. I don't think anyone accused me of. Even in myself, when I think about markets, it's like, wait, can like can you make money in other industries? Could there be a period <laughs> in time in which these high, fast-growing Silicon Valley companies aren't the darlings of markets? Like, even, you know, like, I never, like, wanted the Kool-Aid in the first place, but I still, like, it's hard to, like, 
you know, turn my head in a different direction. Well, and also there's so much additional artifice like built on top yeah. of the tech industry at this point in time. Like there's so much media and yes, things like right. people talk about it so much. I just can't imagine such, you know, another industry like, I don't know, no. some boring conglomerate that like pulls things out of the ground, something like that, having the same excitement attached to it. I but, know, like are people like, and even if like we do have another like let's say we have like a decade of oil and commodity booms like we're gonna have like people on Twitter like doing big threads about like <laughs> what it's like to work at you know Pioneer or what it's right. like to work I just like don't see it it's hard or getting like, excited about total market size right yeah, to Steve's town right. point the anyway to total market size of every car owner <laughs> in the entire world yeah so much good stuff also just I thought you know. The part about how much safer the financial system mm. is and coming from what I would say is a, a very credible source on that topic. Yeah, it is something that we have been hearing repeatedly on the podcast. And every time I hear it, I, I do have that knee jerk 2008 PTSD yeah. reaction thinking, oh, gosh, we're going to jinx it. But Don't you jinx know, it. hopefully we should get Dan Tarullo on. Yeah, the, yeah, uh, I had the same the thought. Podcast. Let's do it. All right. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the Odd Thoughts podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Armin and Dash Bennett at Dashbot. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at Podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots where we post transcripts, Tracy and I write a blog, and we have a weekly newsletter that comes out every Friday. Go there and sign up. Thanks for listening. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.